right now like the um you know the midwest makes sense to to buy now it's not going through like a uh, a reset with floating rate debt or too much new supply it's just growing kind of slow and steady a lot of markets are at cap rates where you have positive leverage it's just traditional real estate investing you're listening to ice cream with investors a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Drew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, you know we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Yeah, I, was, uh, I, I know you asked that, so I was thinking about don't just say uh, regular chocolate is too boring. So I guess my uh, my favorite ice cream is, is anything that has... Uh, chocolate twice in it so regular chocolate with some uh a chocolate in it like so uh reese's peanut butter cups or if it's a uh, uh like an ice cream bar or something you know chocolate on the outside as well as on the inside so double chocolate so, do, do you know what culver's is i'm from wisconsin so it would be impossible of course not you to. Do. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, we went to Culver's the other night with my fiance's dad and, uh, he, he pulls up to the drive-thru and he's like, they say, can we take your order? And they said, what do you have? That's chocolate. And they listed like yeah. five things. He goes, that'll do put it all in one. <laughs> so oh, nice. You all would get along. Perfect. I feel like. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. They got a lot of good options at Culver's. If you want to go, go wild, you can put like anything in and also they don't call it ice cream there too. I thought that's what you're going to say. They, they would correct you. It's, it's custard. So I thought yeah. they were. But yeah, nice. No, that's a that's a spot to be for ice cream. So either way, it's like drinking concrete. It's so thick. Yeah. <laughs> well, nice. tell our listeners what's the scoop. What do you do today? Yeah, I invest in multifamily buildings. You know, I started out doing duplexes and three units, and you know, today this is like fifteen, twenty years later. You know, now I do do deals that are larger to me, at least. You know, somewhere between five and. $35 million deal sizes. Now, um, I invest in Chicago, Phoenix, and then also I just recently moved to, to Texas, sort of getting going in Dallas and Austin is, is new markets. So. Gotcha. Well, take us back to your beginning. Where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah, I started early, you know, where I started an internet business in high school, just selling items in video games. And before that, you know, I had, uh, done other sort of like little side hustles. I started, a. uh, um, I was a magician. And then after the, the video selling the items in the games, I started a vending machine route. Um, but really what I, um, like I started in real estate, I was trying to figure out what to do with the money I made from the internet business, uh, between my about sophomore year of high school to freshman year of college, I made just right around a hundred thousand dollars. And well, I didn't, I didn't spend any of it. I saved it all. And so I just, uh, like, I, like I literally, all I spent was I bought a radar detector in response to getting a speeding ticket. And that was all I, that's the only thing I spent the money on. And I just saved it all. And I thought this is a, um, you know, so both my parents were teachers. And so my dad talked a lot about mutual funds and what he had invested in. And they were really big. They had a lot of really good money habits. They weren't in the business world, but they never, like if they, you asked them how to buy a car, they would say, you just, whatever you have the money for, you just would write a check for, you know? So I had like a lot of good habits from that where most people, if you can afford the lease payment or whatever, then you can afford it, you know, kind of talk, but you don't, you don't get as far ahead doing that. So I had these sort of really good lessons that they gave me. So when I started making this money, I just started doing what basically I already had heard about. And so I saved it. I invested in the stock market. I learned how to trade options. I bought mutual funds and I, I lost money trading options. I uh, didn't make any money in the stock market. Really. Uh, I, I didn't like how it was out of my control. And then two, also being a, a teenager, it was happening so slowly. You know, I was like, I just, um, I don't, I don't like, I, I, I really like what I'm reading about in real estate. And I was reading a book, um, just breaking down real simply how it all worked. And I, I said, this is, this makes sense. Like you, you have cash flow appreciation, you pay your loan down over time, you get tax breaks. It's not core. It has a very low correlation with other types of investments. So when I go to uh, college, so not, like I said, I'm from Wisconsin and uh, I went to college at UW-Madison. And so I said, when I go to Madison, I'm going to buy a property. And I did. So I bought a duplex my freshman year, which I moved into my sophomore year. And then was just kind of off and going since I bought, uh, since then I bought four properties in school, about $2 million total. Then I moved up to Minnesota to work uh, after I graduated for an apartment developer there, met, uh, 
met my first partner and investor um, while working there. It was an intern, and he's like, hey, I hear what you're like, what you've been doing on your own. Let's go talk to my dad. Maybe he'd want to invest. Met with the dad, and they, they liked it and liked one of the deals that I brought to that meeting that I had printed out. And long, you know, we ended up buying that deal, and, and over the course of the next 10 years, bought about $100 million of property. So feel free to interrupt me or whatever, Matt. Yeah, I, I got a lot there to go off of. But first off, I've heard the story about that meeting. Um, what, where did you find the deal that you ended up buying? Well, so I just I printed it off a of LoopNet actually. So I um I didn't I brought deals to the meeting, but I didn't I didn't have them underwritten. They weren't like a full pitch book. It was more because uh, I think what we did was we were out to dinner just like at Panera, me and the uh, the son his uh, and we were. You know, and going back to work, we worked the place you worked pretty hard where we were after dinner going back to the office. But we were, um, he, he had mentioned the thing about his dad. So we were like, let's go meet with him for lunch tomorrow, you know, or the next day. So then I just printed out, uh, I printed out oh, just like a wide variety of deals. I also had no idea how much money they wanted to invest. I printed out a duplex that was in, um, I think in the uptown neighborhood in Minneapolis and then a shopping center in that same neighborhood that was like three million bucks and then a, condo deal because this is in 2008 so at the end of the end like uh september so we you know there was a busted up condo deal in san francisco as an example and just a wide variety of things and they really liked uh the shopping center you know i told them about what the cash flow would be it was a two-tenant retail deal in minneapolis and they the location was really good it was a brand new property um and, and he liked uh he likes new properties because the, the dad owned a construction company and you know, it made sense at the time as a deal too, because the rents were, the leases were signed uh, kind of after the recession had started because it's 2008. So things were, you know, getting, getting bad, um, but it was already signed at the low rents and then it were two seven year leases. And so, you know, one of the tenants was Verizon wireless. And then another one was like a, was a tanning business, but like a large chain um, corporate lease. And so, you know, it's like, you got to think by 2015, we're going to be like in a better place. And this deal makes a lot of sense today. Uh, double digit cash flow, like you get paid to wait. Uh, so that made made sense. It was a simple pitch, and we bought it. So yeah, I just think it's funny because uh, you might be the first person in history that I know that bought a deal off a of LoopNet. Yeah, I know. Well, you know that's uh, um, yeah, that's usually because the better deals aren't there. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that was. I mean, in two thousand eight, I you know, CoStar wasn't as uh, dominant even the place i had worked at where they had thirty thousand apartments they while i worked there they signed up for costar for the first time and so that back before costar bought loopnet i think that um there were a lot more listings on it and now it seems like those listings that were on loopnet are now mostly on costar um so yeah back in the two early 2000s yeah loopnet that had a lot of deals on it that was the spot that's yeah. could just be a timing thing too because that um website had its run so. Now, now it just seems like a good place to uh, get your phone spammed. Yeah. <laughs> if you sign up to look at a deal, all you do is get 10,000 calls in the next 24 hours. Yeah, I, I don't doubt it. Yeah, mostly, yeah, all the stuff now that I buy, it's all, it's mostly through brokers, but not on the market. So I have actually not experienced that one yet, Matt, where I'm getting blown up on a LoopNet one. Um, but that's, yeah, I'll keep that in mind. Give them my uh, Google voice number then. My, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it might be the best, well, the best tip then the got to get a I, Google voice number. You, you sound like somebody that's been involved in business since a very young age. And I'm always interested, like, how did you get into business? Why was that like a hobby for you building up this internet business? <clears throat> I mean, I just always liked it. You know, it was funny, you know, cause like, uh, there's no one in my family doing it. My dad's dad, so obviously, so my grandpa, he he was a business guy. He was a car, uh, he was a car salesman, but not not on the just one. He was like running a bunch of dealerships for AMC, like a car brand that's no longer in existence. But he and then he quit that and started a, a bunch of bars and restaurants and stuff in Wisconsin. But I never met him. He had already actually passed away before I was born. He had a heart attack, so I'm not. Um, you know, I don't know. They would just say that I was like him. So I don't really know. I just always liked it. And I just uh, liked wheeling and dealing just naturally. When I was a kid, I would just like my parents, I, I performed a concert for them at one point, probably when I was like five and I, I charged admission to it. <laughs> and uh, I would try to sell things to my sister. I have a sister who's two and a half years younger than me. And I always try to sell her things my pogs were popular or just, just any beanie babies resell them to her, you know, just any, you know, I just liked wheeling and dealing. Um, 
And so I just, I don't know where it came from. And it's funny, I have a, I have a son now and I try to get him interested in that. Like where I, I told him if he makes a painting of, uh, he's really been struggling writing his lowercase Ks. Apparently that's the hardest letter to write. I told him I would buy that painting. And then he made a bunch of paintings to, to sell me. And so he, you know, trying to pique the interest, uh, got him to invest his tooth fairy money. So I, I don't, I don't know where it came from, but I'm trying to just stimulate that in my own kid, but not like yeah. force it on him. Like just say like, you got your five bucks for the tooth fairy. Like, you know, you could put that in one of the deals on our websites and turn it into more and just do what I'm doing. And he did. He actually picked a deal that we, we lived in for a couple of years um, in Chicago. And so he threw his money into that and he's up to like $12 now on that deal. So how old is he? pretty good. He's five. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm wondering, have you seen him respond to that um, kind of like influence because we have a seven-year-old and he wanted to save up money to get a, a smartwatch, not like an Apple watch, but you know, a kid's smartwatch where you can block who calls and all that kind of stuff. But he was, we started giving him a salary. So if you do these chores, we'll give you $6 a week. And if you save that money, we'll give you $7. So a little bit of extra bonus to kind of incentivize him. And after about four or five weeks, he's like, I am never going to get there. It's a hundred dollars. What can I do? And I'm like, how about a lemonade stand? He went out there and sold like $38 worth of lemonade in an hour. I mean, it is wow. the best like ROI I've ever seen a kid have. And like that kind of kicked it into motion. So I'm just wondering how other people teach their kids about money to, to help them see the light. Yeah. I think what you did is great. We, that's for the most part, um, so he, he's really aware of what I'm doing for work because he's, um, for two years, I, I guess just, I, I, I lived in one of our deals and is also the one that had our office in it. And, uh, and so we, um, he would also come to the office. He knows the names of all the employees, like, cause he would pop in. Um, so he, he's wide. he really knows what we're doing. And he also for, um, I don't know if anyone's ever listened to a sleep story and this is about to be the worst endorsement ever for my own podcast, but here we go. Um, so he used to listen to the calm app for sleep stories, like, you know, stories about a bear that they're reading slowly and you fall asleep and you takes your mind off your day or whatever struggles you have as a five-year-old. And they, um, the, the sleep story he likes now is hearing my podcast. And so he doesn't, um, so I ask him, do you want to hear me as the host or the guest? And if he says guest, then I'll look up like one that I went on. And if it's a host, then I'll put on the Brandon blueprint. And I don't, so he, the idea though, I think is he just likes, you know, he likes to hear me talking and it's like soothing maybe. Um, and, and so he's, but he's learned a lot actually hearing these episodes. Cause the other day I asked him if he knew what I do and he basically broke down. I mean, how like a five-year-old would describe it. Yeah. what we do, how I got started. Like he, you know, he knew I used to be, um, you know, he, he, like the stuff I just said, he already is aware of this. He knows about the internet business and wheeling and dealing. And so now he's starting to think that's probably like normal behavior. So then, uh, like I have $5 he's thinking, and then I explained you could invest that. And yeah, I mean the first deal I gave a ridiculous return just to get his interest where it make it simple. Like your $5 will turn into 10 if you put it in for two weeks. So, and then, my girlfriend was like, well, why don't you give me that deal? Like I'll, I got, I yeah. you know, want to invest, you know, <laughs> hey, 50, hey, I got a 50 grand, yeah. six figure checks in the back. Yeah. You, I know. Yeah. Those lying around. Yeah. She asked if she could put 50,000 in that. And then, then I asked if, are you, are you five? Like yeah. <laughs> just teasing her, but they were, um, but then the next one I did more little, I did a lot lower return where he put in his 10 and got 12 or something. Cause he, but it, just try to make it interesting where he never saw a $2 bill before. And I got a $2 bill uh back and when i was getting changed some for some reason and so i don't know he he has a, a list of things to do each week uh but it's not um he kind of loses track of it to be honest i think he's a little young for that but he has a way where he could earn i think four dollars a week it's like each item's worth 10 cents and the way it adds up it's like yeah i think he can make f maybe more the most he's made is yeah. four in a week i think probably if he did it all i can make 10 or 12, but he's not, I think he's too young for that. But yeah, I like, um, what you're talking about. And I guess the, it's interesting you worded it as a salary. Cause yeah, to us, we were just, it was like a reward for doing your weekly things. And then too, if you get, uh, you don't get a smiley face at school, you get deducted 10, 10 points, which would equate to a dollar. So yeah. for if well, you're missing up at I'm, school. 
that really spurred a whole different conversation around like why is Jeff Bezos one of the richest people in the world used to be the richest and I talk about like the value people create in this world and like the people that are the wealthiest tend to create the most value in this world think about it Shep is what I say is like he you can get anything at any point delivered to your house within 24 hours isn't that just incredibly valuable now maybe again to a seven-year-old they're like it's always been that way but to us I think that that kind of emphasizes the point of how much value he's brought to this world. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I've ended up saying a similar thing because my son just loves Tesla's. And so he knows who Elon Musk is and, uh, you know, asks a lot of questions about what they're doing. And yeah, I mean, like he has a lot of money and it's cause look at like the impact he's had. So right. yeah, it makes, makes sense. So, right. So back to the real estate investing, your, your first uh, deal was a retail shopping center. And then um, talk us through, I think you were working at a real estate company at the time is what you mentioned. Then you kind of broke off. Talk to us about that transition. Do you think that working at a real estate company really helped you develop your chops to go into this space? Just talk us through that. Yeah, I think what out of the stuff I did early on, I think the most important piece, if I could give advice on that, was that I... I think the hardest part, the hardest way to quit your job, I think is, or even to find investors would be, let's say I would be working at a place and then I'm going to quit because I have this idea to invest. I have no deals. I'm pitching investors and I quit my job. I got no money coming in. You really have a short runway of time doing that. And then, um, no personal track record. So what I did and I didn't, you know, this wasn't really like a grand plan, but looking back on it, it's what I would definitely recommend is I essentially, I was working what I would call like three jobs, uh, from 2008 to 2011. So I had, um, my own properties that I had bought in Madison. I had bought four, I had sold two. So I still had two rentals there that I self managed, um, from out of state. By that point I had moved it to Illinois, but, um, and then I was working uh, in Minnesota at a W two, and then later in Chicago. And then I had the um, the the partnership with the father and the son, the business we called the Blackhawk Investment Group. And so I did all three of those at the same time, a nights, a weekends, during the day. I had no free time. I didn't do anything on the weekends really. I just would just wake up, go to my job. I'd come back at thankfully the second job I had, I could leave at five because then I could work from five till midnight on the other stuff and just repeat. But what I was able to do is by the, when I quit my job in 2011, I had two deals on my own and then five that I owned with this family and pretty sizable deals, $20 million total. And then we had a, a uh, $3 million shopping center on the way that we were also buying for a sixth deal. And the way we set up all those early deals, um, you know, we, uh, just, it was just a, the three of us and the dad isn't like a private equity guy. So we originally looked at doing like a fees and a promote and then a preferred return and um, or a preferred return with a, you know, once you hit your preferred return and pay the capital back and then you get a share of the profits. But we ended up, he, he thought that sounded like a lot of fees and it was complicated. So we ended up just settling on a straight up split. We just split 80, 20 on every deal. And um, with the capital being returned upon uh, upon sale. And so, like you, the idea was like, you do the work, uh, us like, and you put in the money and then that's, that's that. And, but there's no fees. So then that was, you know, would have been hard to do if I had quit my job, let's say, and I needed like that acquisition fee or the guarantee of the asset management fee coming in, but I didn't need that. And then that's what this uh, guy was most comfortable with. And, you know, if you can do what your investor is most interested in, assuming it's like fair enough for you, like he would be more willing to keep, keep participating if he liked the structure. And so, I know most people like they, and I think the incentives are, um, you know, you can argue on incentives. Like some people would say like, that's surprising. You're getting paid right away. Um, but also then the, I wasn't getting a fee. So like you, you could say right. with like a fee and a promote and a pref, like, are you, you, are you incentivized to push deals, getting a fee or am I, or on the flip side of the structure we had, are you incentivized to push a deal along? Cause you get paid right away versus waiting until you make your eight pref or whatever and pay the capital back. So I don't, um, so you could argue it both ways, but what fortunately happened was we ended up in a structure where we were, no one was incentivized to push for a sale. Cause normally probably in a lot of these setups, the sponsors own the deal for five years, or they might not have been paid anything yet in terms of the share of the profits. Cause you have to pay the pref, which in this environment, the cash flow has been very low on um, many, many deals. So that if you have an eight pref, let's say the deal probably has not been making an eight, um, 
So you have a accrued prep you got to pay back, then you got to return the capital, then you get something. So it pushes the sponsor to sell. Um, and fortunately on these deals, we didn't have that set up. So we have deals. The, the first one we bought in 2009, I still own. And so we, you know, like we're been, and we have a lot of deals we've owned for more than 10 years. And so that's really helped us where we've built a lot of wealth um, doing it that way on that first deal. We've already 4X'd our money. So four times the investment he awesome. put in five hundred and twenty-five thousand. We've already distributed out over two million dollars, uh, and we still own the property just from that one deal. Amazing. So, which you know, which if I was incentivized with a preferred return and a pref, maybe I would have been pushing to sell that in twenty thirteen. You know, prices went up a lot between two thousand nine and twenty thirteen. You know, or whatever five year hold. You know, two thousand fourteen. You know, we would have been thinking about selling. So a couple of questions on that. One, have you rerun the numbers on those older deals to see, hey, if you would have structured this in a typical syndication, what those would have been? Well, I, I haven't, but in a lot of the deals that we underwrite now, I do know um I do know what my what the like what Brandman Capital's share of the overall distributions would be. So in like our waterfall today, um I guess it depends how much money you put in, but the stock waterfall is is eight uh, percent pref. Then a 70 30. Then once you hit a 12, it's 50 50. And then depending if you invest more than a half million, like we, we sometimes either go, don't do the 50 50 over 12 or change it to a 60 40. With that, with that waterfall, um, we get roughly 20% of the overall distributions uh, on deals that are, let's say, underwritten to a 15 IRR. So those deals we did way better than a 15 IRR. Um, so far, our average IRR on stuff we sold is 24. And a lot of the deals we sold were our worst deals to like put the money into something better because uh, we weren't really thinking about promoting returns or anything at that point. So I would have, yeah, would have probably made more in total doing a regular water regular preferred return in the waterfall we have today but i would have not been i would probably not have been distributed as much so far but in total when we sell i would i would be getting more than the tw like right now to a 15 irr i get about i would get 20 percent. but we some of these deals are 30 40 irr so we would but again i'd have to push to sell which then that's not we wouldn't be aligned on that he doesn't want to sell um any of these so like so yeah i would have probably been better off with the traditional if we're just going total dollars but also there's like a timing element uh and then would we have just on the flip side would we have sold those deals in let's say 2014 so then it's like i got a bigger percentage than 20 but of a way smaller number because we owned it yeah. for five years versus owning it for 10 or 12 or whatever we're going to do 20 years so we refied two properties actually right before rates went up um 10 year fixed three percent interest like you know where you look like a genius in retrospect but on one of the properties like the deal we agreed on is we're going to flip one to a 15-year amortization and pay it off um so we're doing stuff that like isn't accretive to the irr but more just like uh you know you got a partner who's almost 70 years old want to do like you know it's more conservative wants to you know pay off a building uh you know so we're you know so we definitely wouldn't be doing that stuff if we um had this had that set up i'd say i want to get paid i want to get my promote Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. So. Yeah, you you've lived in both of these worlds, right? We were talking about beforehand how in syndications there are fees associated with the acquisition costs, but you also have a lot of overhead to go get those acquisitions done. Um, but you've also lived in this other world where you don't have to worry about timing of sale and holding the property too long because it drags down your IRR and just different things like that. How do you? I guess why did you make the jump to kind of the syndication world, and then how do you think about both of those factors right now as we enter into a world where you know nobody's really hitting prefs, uh, cash on cash is really strapped, and rising debt costs? Just talk us through that. Well, it was really more of like a just changes that happened in my career. So in 2019, this the son and this father's son. So the son's name was Brian. Like he passed away. 
so he was two years younger than me uh, um and just he just passed away in his sleep like i know it's just uh like a mystery what happened but he so that i was thinking we would just keep doing deals the three of us really forever and so that's why like we weren't doing you know we weren't selling deals to build the track record or doing doing anything we were just thinking we're just going to recycle this money that we have from our own our own deals and not uh you know not uh not, not be raising any outside capital so then when he passed away i made a pivot um but it wasn't a, a, a pivot to syndication yet it was i went through and thought all these who have i talked to that was maybe interested in working together or investing but i didn't we weren't set up to take on outside money. Like we were just really set like as a private company, like investing this money that his dad threw into deals and then, then re redeploying it. Like our strategy actually from 2013 to 2019 was we had a $3 million chunk of money. We'd buy 10 million of property with it. We'd raise the NOI. We would refi all the money out. Then we keep the property. Then we do buy another 10. And we did that for, um, for 13 deals in a row, full cash out refis over a hundred percent on average and like with like in a one and a half year average time span. So that was a really good, that was a really good run. I mean, it was helped by rates were in the fours and Chicago, the cap rates, the stabilized cap rate at the time was like six. So you had really good, uh, positive leverage. You stabilize it to like a seven cap and you can refire money out. So yeah, the whole business was just finding deals where we could do that. And, and so I found another person, the similar deal where it was a father-in-law and son-in-law this time, a guy I met actually showing apartments of mine. He was another leasing agent, but he was interested in investing in property. What he was talking about doing, you could tell you needed a lot of capital to do. It was renovating buildings, all cash. And in Chicago, that's a couple million dollars at a minimum. And so, you know, I, I just kind of when this all happened in 2019 re-engaged with him and then we bought a bunch of stuff uh quickly together from 2019 to 2021 and still now um where i bought about 100 million of property with the um, first guys in minnesota and then another 100 million with the um the father-in-law son-in-law uh 2019 to 2021 and then and i started thinking like i i really should still diversify this business and then i had people that were um asking to invest in our deals. And I was still wasn't set up to do that. So then uh, in 2021, I was like, let's take on these investors that are asking to invest with us, set it up. So I signed up for Juniper Square. I, one of the guys, my only employee at that point, he pivoted to be more like asset manager, investor relations. And I hired two more acquisitions guys. And then we started also looking at the Sunbelt. So then we bought five deals in Phoenix in 2021 and 2022. And then started um, getting rolling in Texas. We haven't bought anything yet, but um, you know that was part of my move down here. So that's um, so. Hopefully that answered your question. But it was more sort of just overall strategy for the business, and then having people asking to invest, and you're turning them away. Uh, but I think once you have more than uh, I don't know, the most common thing is a is the the fees that the sponsor charges and a preferred return and and a promote. So I think just as we've increased the investor base, like that's, I think a normal, most common structure. So I think we, you know, just, I'm, I'm fine doing that. I don't, um, I do still kind of favor longer term holds, like probably the shortest deal length we would ever do would be five years. It's just, I just think that's how you make money in real estate. It's not like a one or two yeah. year game. It's just a make money slow, build wealth kind of thing. And you think of like these people that did it, uh, in, you know, I know people in Chicago where they're, their dad bought like a hundred duplexes in the, the Lincoln Park neighborhood, you know, back when they were 10 to 50 grand. And now that's like a minimum dollars, a minute million minimum, probably each type of thing, yeah. you know? So like, I don't know what his IRR is and it probably would have been pretty great if he sold in the eighties, but instead he made, you know, $50 million, not including cash flow, and just from these duplexes probably. So like, you know, that yeah. sounds, so I'm trying to do it kind of, you know, a, like, uh, sort of like that as well. So, you know, make money slow, not just be selling everything every year or two. At that point, who cares what his IRR is? He's dead. He's wealthy. Yeah, so. I know. That's why. Yeah, it's a joke. Like he, he doesn't know either, but it is. So. Right. Right. Um, you, I don't want to breeze over the point that you mentioned that one of your partners passed. And I think that can kind of shape the way you view partnerships and, um, different things like that. I, I, I don't know how to ask the question, but how did that impact you personally? And then how did that impact you on the business side? Yeah, well, it had a big impact on, on everything. Um, you know, where, yeah, I talked to him more than probably anybody, uh, 
and then for him to pass away that yeah that was a just such a big shock and I mean, it, it changed everything. And then, too, I guess, I mean, for like, just in terms of totally personal, not related, but I ended up, I got a divorce in 2020 where we moved out at that. And then divorces take a while done in 2021. So it was just kind of wild to think like by 2021, I, um, the two people I talked to pretty much like almost the most, like probably 90% of the conversations I was having in my life, I don't talk to either of those two people again. It's totally crazy. In terms of like how how fast and how much your life can change, yeah. And so I yeah like so that is like my biggest memory of the whole thing. That's why I had to mention the divorce because it's like ended up happening kind of with uh we I obviously I, I have the five year old with uh with her so then that we still and we're still communicating because we're co parenting fifty fifty but it's not um you know so like so that was just such a surprise so it just kind of how much your life can change fast um. So I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the, um, if I have like a business lesson from Brian passing away, but one thing I do, I do, I might've realized that after just kind of observing partnerships, I guess, where I do, I do want to answer that, but it's more just a general thing. Now having done this for almost 20 years. And I will say when, um, most people form partnerships, a couple things that I see that they do that now that I've been doing this longer, I think people should reevaluate like a lot of times people will partner and they don't um the idea is it's like we're gonna we're partners we'll be partners for life essentially like this is and i think probably the better way to look at partnering is to um to just think it's for like a period of time or could be for a period of time you know let's say if let's um let's say we were to partner and my role would be i'm gonna get the investors i you know and i know about like getting loans done and then let's say matt you have the deals like maybe what if we go into that we should say like what the plan is we're not going to do this for life we're gonna we're gonna do some deals we're gonna um try it out for a little bit and then even if it goes well maybe we just think it's like for like a three-year run and we can reevaluate just kind of where nobody's thinking it's like for 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 life especially if you have something already set up like you're already doing deals so am i like maybe it makes sense to partner on some deals and not on all and most people when they partner it's like no we're partnering on everything and it's for life and i think it's okay to like look at it another way uh especially when you're first starting out like one person might um you know not be pulling their weight and then there was no mechanism to reevaluate so i think um so I think that's something I've learned. And it's, I mean, if it works out and it's like you reevaluate in the third year and it's going fine, like you, I'm not saying you need to just cancel it and you have to only be partners for three years. Like it's fine to keep working together. But I think it's um, one thing that I found interesting is just how people go into it thinking it's there's only one option. It needs to be for life together and probably just 50 50. And there's a lot of ways you could do it. And I think, um, you know, like for now, if I were to partner with somebody, like if if it made sense, it probably wouldn't. I don't know if it would be 50 50. I already have a company and I already and I don't know if it would be it would be for life. Maybe it would be to help us like get over the hump or to raise capital or to do something. Um, and so I think that's, uh, you know, that's a thought. And then I, I also, too, a lot of times I see people that are partnering and what one of the partners is bringing is just something you could hire out. Uh, yeah. to like a third party. So what was great with my partnership with, uh, with Brian and then um, uh, in, in the, both the partnerships that I've done so far is we, we had complementary skills. Like I had the deals, they had the money. They were also both working in, on post-closing helping run the deal. So we were, we were doing different stuff. Um, but let's say if the, if someone's only role was like, Hey, I'll manage the properties. I don't know. Maybe you should, you could just hire that out and you'd have the whole, you know, the whole, uh, the whole kit and caboodle, all the, all the profits to yourself, or, you know, could partner with someone else doing a different, doing something else. So that's something else that I've noticed, um, you know, too, where if you could just hire it that, and these are all uncomfortable conversations to have, obviously, you know, cause you're, you're talking about telling somebody like, uh, you know, you have to figure out a nice way to say like, I'm just going to hire that out, you know, and you might be friends or something. So it's, you know, um, those, so those are some things that I've realized over the years. So I'm not sure if I worded the, um, the partnering yeah. for maybe not for life, right. Or got the idea across, but yeah, I think the main thing is one, you want to make sure that roles are clearly delineated. And then two, there's some sort of checkpoint mechanisms built into the way you all go about your business to check, to make sure everybody feels okay. And, um, I know for my fiance and I, we have a Sunday debrief, we call it every Sunday morning. 
we spend an hour kind of talking through the previous week, making sure that she feels heard, I feel heard, talking about schedules, all those sorts of things. And with my uh, business partner, I mean, we do that on Mondays. So I think it's important to understand what is your role, what is the other person's role, and then you have these checkpoints that you're you're communicating effectively or clearly on where you both stand. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. Yeah, I'm sure you're finding success with doing it that way. Um, one of the things I, I found interesting about you though, is this idea that you're living in Austin, you've some de- done some deals in Phoenix, but also that you still operate kind of in the Midwest. And, uh, I don't have a lot of folks on the show that operate in Chicago, let's say, and I know you have a lot of experience in Chicago. Some of us, uh, from the outside view it as a very landlord friendly, uh, tenant friendly state and landlord unfriendly state. But I think any market, somebody is doing deals. And you have found a way to kind of crack that nut because of experience. And I wanted you to talk through a little bit about, you know, how you view Chicago, why you're investing there and uh, just take it from there. So I think Chicago, that has a lot of positives that are not not talked about. And I think, I mean, just uh, for for one, let's say starting out and in investing, there is a really a wide range of property types and values. You know, let's say I... Yeah, now I look at Phoenix and Dallas and these places, and there's not a lot of like duplexes for sale there. So a lot of people that, to start, they got to partner up, and there's ten people partnering up to buy a hundred unit deal, and you need to have five co GPs on it to get the loan approved and everything because it's such a big deal. Whereas you know in Chicago, um, you you can just start on your own buying a duplex. You know, so I mean that's one thing that I liked about it. You know, um, when I was first getting going, is there were deals that there were the size I could do. Um, and then too, that's, you know, the Midwest is, is, uh, very stable. Um, you know, I was kind of, I was talking to somebody where they're asking, what was I, what did I, have I been doing differently with, you know, high interest rates and just everything that's going on. And I said, I basically just went back to doing what I was doing the last 15 years. Like it was, you know, I was started to get, I was going in Phoenix, we're getting going in Texas, but all those markets with how much growth they had and how aggressively people were bidding on things. The cap rates were all below the interest rates at the time. So then that pushed everyone into these debt fund loans that were floating rate because in order to get your loan to size out to any respectable leverage point where then you could raise capital on the equity side, you had to take these loans on that were sized by your exit, uh, basically your exit NOI, like what you could get it to in three years. And so um, that, which that puts a lot of, that's, there's a lot of strain in those markets. Now, if like a lot of the deals that traded the last couple of years, all were financed that way, where now when their interest rate caps expire, they'll be, you know, eight, 9% interest and, uh, the deals unlevered make somewhere in the fours or fives. So that's, there's a lot of, there's potentially a lot of pain on those deals, whether people can recap them or sell them for what they have into them. I mean, we'll see, but so I could see where there's going to be a lot of, a lot of choppiness and, you know, potential, you know, at least some level of distress in the Sun Belt because of how all those deals were financed. But when I look at the Midwest, nobody did any floating rate debt. You didn't need to. You could just buy a five and a half cap deal in Chicago and finance it at, you know, two years ago at three and a half percent interest or, you know, or before that four percent. Like you had positive leverage the whole time. You didn't need to take on a debt fund loan because you had a you had a day one, you know, five cap. You didn't need to do something to the NOI to get it to a five cap. So um, the market is just very stable, steady and strong And that in, in Chicago where it's, you know, it's the third biggest city in the country. So even though it's uh, it's not growing that fast, it's very diversified. I mean, McDonald's global headquarters is there. Um, I mean, all these tech companies, Facebook and Google have offices there. I mean, there's I know there's a lot of headlines because companies move out, but there's so many companies already there that then um I mean, the employment numbers still go up and the city of Chicago itself um, and the state, the population is not growing, but the nice parts, the nice suburbs in Chicago and the nice neighborhoods, they are. There is a lot of stuff under construct. There's there's new buildings being under are under construction and like the single family home market in the suburbs, especially um, it's it's multiple offers on deals, price is still going up like today in 2023. Like this is, I talked to somebody this week actually, who she moved uh, back to Chicago from somewhere. I, for, I forgot where now, but she was buying a place and she moved in with her parents. Cause she can't get, a, she can't, she can't buy every, she's getting outbid. Like, it's like, you're talking to someone in 
the Sun Belt in 2021, and it's it's uh, yep. you know the north suburbs in Chicago. So, uh, so it's so I think in a time like now, that's where you want to be. We can get positive cash flow, positive leverage day one. You're still, you know, CoStar had an article out at the end of August where Chicago is number one for rent growth in the country uh, right now, and number one for least new supply. So yeah, our, um, you know, so we have not bought anything in over a year now, but we do have a deal under contract in Chicago that we're raising money for. And it's the, the what we liked about it is we're stabilizing it to a seven cap and it's a two year old building, a $20 million deal, roughly. It's a nice, um, it's a nice asset that, you know, a couple of years ago would have been, would have traded for a much lower cap rate. This will be probably the lowest, this will be the lowest trade per unit in the neighborhood by a lot. Um, so like the price makes sense for what's there, but we're, you know, we've, we've experienced the last two years, five to 9% rent growth on our buildings in Chicago back to back years. And I own 16 buildings in Chicago right now. And so it's, so when you understand the market and all the nuances, there still are good places to buy, you know, somebody that's really smart that, um, uh, that told someone who works for me if you could follow that like that there's good deals in in uh in bad markets there's good deals in good markets or it's just any way you slice it up like and that could be good economically could be good it could be bad locations like there's people making money in real estate you know probably in um in every city you know and there's you just have to and also one thing too is a lot of this stuff where like just numbers wise yeah austin Texas, that's that's the best city for population and job growth. It has GDP growth. It's two standard deviations beyond the national average. It's uh, been number one for population and job growth for on the, we 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 calculated this uh, all this data nationwide and picking new markets and that was that's the most correlated with prices going up long term. So Austin's got a lot going for it, but right now it's got more new supply than any new market. It's, you know, it's, or, you know, basically tied with, uh, you know, uh, your hometown for the, uh, the, the, the most where, where we're living at and, uh, with Matt in Nashville there, but we, we have, um, and so they have huge tailwinds, a lot of these cities, but guess what? A lot of that's priced in. It's not, there's no one stabilizing deals in Austin. It's a seven cap. If you can get it to a five cap, you're lucky but interest rates are in the sixes. So the deals are really hard to pencil. And, um, you know, that'll make sense when the growth comes back or if there's some discounts because of all the new supply or people with floating rate debt, uh, just wanting to, to sell. But right, you know, right now, like the, um, you know, the Midwest makes sense to, to buy now that's not going through like a, uh, a reset with floating rate debt or too much new supply. It's just growing kind of slow and steady, a lot of markets are at cap rates where you have positive leverage. It's just traditional real estate investing. Yeah. The uh, co-start port you referenced, I think the Chicago rent growth was 3%. And yeah. to everybody listening for the past three years, you'd be like, wow, that is super low. I don't want to invest in that because I'm used to seeing 22% growth. Well, 3% is historically average. And right now, when everybody else uh, from Phoenix to Austin to even Nashville is experiencing negative seven, negative two, three percent don't look bad. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's really, yeah, to your point where it's it's really just market by market and also just parts of the city. Like in Phoenix on our deals, we have one deal where the rents are probably are are down seven or eight percent in the last year and another where they're up seven or eight. So, and it's, and they're in different parts. There are ones in one suburb, ones in one part of the of Phoenix. Like it's, it's just things also perform differently. Um, yeah. I did where within Chicago, we have no buildings that have done as little as 3%. I think that 3% for the market is probably for all of the suburbs. And when, you know, it's like the MSA. So it's pulling in parts of Wisconsin and Indiana too. But, you know, for the nice neighborhoods in Chicago, the, the real number is 5% plus the last two years. So yeah, like that's where too... So yeah, so you can you can make deals in any market, and I think really for us, we're trying to minimize variables, focus on deals that we can execute on now, and don't have like a ton of moving pieces. So that's that's what I like about it, where it's like it's a risk off time, and this has high cash flow. It's a new building. There we're coming in with a fixed rate loan, seven percent cash on cash. Like there's not uh, there's very few ways where we're gonna get burned on this. Where you know in but you know there's lots of deals where people are taking them on it's floating rate debt they're going to acquire the property it's in a, a tricky area then they're going to renovate it then they got to re-rent all the units and there's so many so much more risk on that and places that can go wrong then they got to execute a refinance um 
to get out of the bridge loan. And then, uh, you know, it's a three year hold. So also the market's got to be good in three years. And there's a, so there's a lot of moving pieces in those deals and we've done those deals. It's just, I think it's not the, the time for that right now. So right. We, that's why we pivoted, you know, back more to just what we were, what we were doing. So, so Drew, you built a fantastic portfolio, done a number of different things in a number of different markets for a long time. Um, where does this end? Where do you see yourself in the next 10, 15 years? Where's the North star? Yeah. I, I mean, I want to just, I, like, I like, uh, you know, have off having these offerings to passive investors. And, um, you know, I think we want to also start catering more to family offices and just like bigger individuals. So I think that's something that we're going to work on, but I, yeah, I've done a lot of, you know, I would say, you know, really good real estate deals, but I was always the point person for them doing them. Like I want to, I want to build a real business where I'm not, it's not just the, um, you know, from all those deals I was talking about that we did in the past, like that, I found all, I sourced all the deals. I closed them. Like I did every step. Like I, I want to have a actual, you know, develop a real business where, you know, it's not, um, you know, deals are coming in and like, it's an actual company where I have, you know, operating leverage as well. And we're providing a good, product for our, you know, not our tenants as well as our investors. So gotcha. Where does it end? Well, I don't know. I was surprised that I got $2 million of property in, uh, in college. And I'm very surprised that I'm at 200, whatever million now. So, um, wherever it ends, I'll be surprised that we, uh, we did it, but you know, at a, a certain point you just, you, you know, you see like this $20 million deal come in and you're like, yeah, this is a good one. We can do it. And you just do it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to shift this now to our last round. We're calling this the four toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Yeah, the Jim Collins Good to Great is my favorite business book. It's not necessarily about real estate, but it's they break down what uh, and this doesn't do it justice given it this description. So everybody check it out. But it's where they break down the difference between good companies and great companies. Like why did one company grow it? 3% a year, what were their tactics and strategies and why did one grow 200% a year? And just that, I probably learned more from that book about business than any, any one book. Yeah. I haven't read that book in <clears throat> probably a decade, so I need to go revisit that actually. Our second one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, the, I think for, I don't know if it's the best, but I think for, um, for timeliness, definitely that there's good deals and, uh, in all markets where like that, that I have thought about more than any advice that probably, um, in the last couple, in the last couple of years. Cause yeah, you think even though, yeah, the market, it, whether that's the city you're in or overall, whatever product type you're investing in, you know, it's a tough market, but there still will be deals out there. It's just, you might, it's not, you know, it's not like shooting fish in a barrel when, you know, interest rates were three and everything was growing 10, 20% a year. It's a lot tougher, but there still could be good deals out there. In retrospect, when I start was doing those deals 2009 and 10, it was really, it was a a, a junk market, you know, or whatever. Um, uh, but it was, you know, we found some good deals and ended up working out great. And so I think you could wake up in uh, two, three years, find the um, find yourself a similar spot where you'd be happy with whatever you bought, too. Because we're we're about to at least in multifamily, we're going to have a <clears throat> a total drop off in supply where no new projects are really getting started because they don't pencil with high interest rates and putting so much more equity in them. And, and so there's going to be almost no new supply in 2025, 2026. So we got to get to that point, but then by whatever you buy between now and then you're probably going to look like a, like a genius when the rents uh, explode. Cause there's no new, no new supply and all these cities are still growing and we still don't have enough housing. So, yep. It goes back to, I believe all real estate goes up into the right. You just have to hold it long enough. Yeah. Our third one is what are, what are you most proud of in your life? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's, that's a good, that's a good question. I was thinking about that ahead of time. And I, I don't, I don't really have like a, you know, a one thing that I would point to. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, um, you know, just what, what I've been able to do just business wise, you know, it's been, um, I've surprised myself and too along the way, like obviously people reach out and they want to, want to ask a question or get advice. And I, I, I always have sort of, um, this is what I'm trying to get to is like, I pride myself in being a nice person, you know, where I'm proud of obviously my business success and all that. And obviously most people that have a kid would say being a parent, but I think really just trying to be, being a nice person where people will send me messages or questions about how does something work. And 
I just answer them. Like if you just, I mean, obviously if it's like a 10 questions that take forever, like it's, that's too much. But if someone has something or they want to talk, like I just talk like a regular person, like there's not, like I don't, um, act any different, uh, now or 20 years ago. I just, I'm just a regular guy. So that's how I yeah. sort of pride myself on that. Just not being too, um, fancy or whatever. So either. I like it. I like it. Or our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I think Warren Buffett, you know, that I went to the Berkshire halfway conference in, uh, 2015 or 16. And, um, and actually, and Warren, Warren and Bill Gates both walked right by with like in front of us. So that was like a cool experience. Um, just on the floor with like 20 security guards. And, uh, and so I think that, and, and also I went to the Drake concert last week and Drake walked out in the section we were. So I'm getting this uh, collection of videos on my phone of people walking out. But um, yeah, I think just the way he invests, it's kind of similar to my thought. Like he's not doing anything too crazy. It's long term, make money slow. Um, but, you know, it can really work for you if you, um, you know, you don't you don't go broke, for lack of a better term, along the way or just pile it on where, you know, a lot of people you know, they like these businesses that grow, they get real big. Then that's like a, you know, it's, they can't operate, you know, where I don't want to do that. Like I like the, um, you know, just kind of slow and steady type, uh, win the race sort of vibe. Yeah. I actually am surprised. I don't think Warren has been mentioned on the show yet. He might. I'm have, very but... surprised by that. I was, when I, I saw you smile, I thought that's cause that's like what everybody says, but yeah, yeah. he's, yeah, I mean, he's not a real estate guy, I guess, but like, would he not be one of the most iconic investors where you'd want to know what, um, you know, what would he do? Um, so, I mean, yeah, and that's, and I, I mean, yeah, people go to Omaha for that conference, you know, thousands of yeah. people just to, just to learn from them. You can be one-on-one. -on -one. Why not? Yep. Yep. Well, Drew, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about you, uh, where's the best place we can point them? To Brenneman.com. So that's Brenneman Capital's website. You know, we have a portfolio on there. We have, you can sign up to be an investor. You can, uh, we have a passive investing uh, guidebook on there. You can download that and learn about passive investing, how it all works. We were talking about this waterfall stuff for a long time. That's all broken down in there. Different types of investments, how it all works. Uh, I have my own podcast, the Brenneman Blueprint. That's a real estate investing and entrepreneurship podcast you can check out. Um, it's on every podcast platform plus youtube so and then I'm, I'm on social media at drew brenneman but i'm i guess i'm not uh i do i post i post a, a bit on there but i'm not as uh, uh regular with it as i should be so perfect we will leave all those in the show notes and then drew thanks for coming on the show all right thanks matt appreciate it thank you for listening to ice cream with investors if you like what we serve you here it would mean the world to me if you would like subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app